He played carol gun. His rating was higher. But from move seventeen, the king's side was mine. Took my chances fast. My rook was a knife, and my almighty queen a beast on each six. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Ladies' Night, the official podcast of U.S. Chess Women. I'm your host Jennifer Chahadi, and you are listening to the artist Huga of HugaMusica.com. And that is a song that certainly captured my heart. Oh, Capablanca. And oh, what a season it's been for chess. With no time pressure, I'd crush it once and for all. So excited for my next guest on Ladies' Night. I'm live here at the U.S. Women's Open in Las Vegas. And I'm with Charlotte Clymer. She's a writer, army veteran chess player, social media influencer with over 200,000 followers on Twitter. She's also a press secretary at the Human Rights Campaign, and her writing has appeared in the Washington Post and the Huffington Post. In 2017, she came out as a transgender, and recently she started playing in chess tournaments again. And we're live in Vegas, where Charlotte just played her very first women's event, the 2019 edition of the U.S. Women's Open. Thank you so much, Charlotte, for joining me. Yes, I, I, I just got to say it is it is a personal joy to be here because I remember being in middle school when I was 12 and 13 and 14 and reading every issue of Chess Life that came into my home. And I'd always read about you, know, you and your brother and you know, Hikaru Nakamura and all these other folks. It's really kind of a a, a big treat for me to be on this podcast chatting with you. Yeah, it's wonderful to meet you too. And I was so excited that you were thinking about playing in the U.S. Women's Open because I knew it would be a really fun tournament to play. I mean, it's Vegas after all. But tell us a little bit, what was your experience like here, the good and the bad? It was fantastic. I fully expected to come here and get my ass kicked. And that's exactly what happened. Um, I'm quite rusty. Uh, I haven't played for a couple years uh, and, you know, really only played in a ter- one tournament or so in the last five or six years. And what I loved was just this sense of this very welcoming nature of the tournament itself. And, you know, people came to play and just have fun. And what more could you ask out of a chess tournament? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you definitely felt a very positive energy here. Of course, you know, Losoff, the organizer, does a good job of setting the tone. And I have to say, I, I couldn't help but laugh, but also kind of cry. Um, almost at how picturesque the scene you painted was. On Twitter, when you wrote, second round of the U.S. Women's Open, lost to a nine-year-old, she told me I played really good and generously showed me what I could have done better. We don't deserve these kids. Also, I need a drink. <laughs> and I did get a drink, by the way. I, I went straight up way and, and got a drink. Yeah, I was playing this kid and I played three kids, actually. No, no, I'm sorry, four. I played four total. And they, they all beat me. They were just great. Um, but I, I, what I loved about this kid was, I mean, and honestly, she may not have been nine. She may have been six or seven, come to think of it. But she just, you know, destroyed me on the chessboard. And uh, as soon as, you know, I resign and say good game, she leans over and she's like, you played a really great game. And, you know, you could have done this back here. Just wanted to let you know that for next time. Just being very, very helpful. And it I, it kind of broke my heart in a way. And it was also uh, very affirming. I think the future is in pretty good hands. 
Yeah, I agree. I mean, that's really nice that kids are learning sportsmanship so young. I think that's one of the most powerful things about chess, that it's not just about about kids playing each other and making friendships. It's also about them realizing that they can communicate with people who are much older than them as well. Yeah, and I think I told you, because I, I remember I was, uh, you know, you were very helpful in, you know, reintroducing me to chess earlier this year when I reached out to you. Um, and it was very interesting to see uh, that the, the tournament was exactly as you painted it. Cause I remember asking you, you know, I don't want to play in this if it's just going to be all kids. Cause I don't want to feel like the weird adult playing with mm-hmm. a ton of kids at chess. You're like, no, 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 you should totally come. It's going to be a fun event. And, uh, you were totally right. Uh, I came and everyone was having a great time just, uh, you know, uh, displaying their prowess on the chessboard. Um, the winner, actually, 23-year-old Megan Lee, I feel like she is somebody who, you know, we're trying to get more people of that level, of that age, because a lot of people drop out around that time, 20s and 30s, when the career starts to get, like, really demanding. And I'm curious about your thoughts on all this, because you wrote a very viral thread on ageism in your Twitter feed. And it went viral. It was very moving to people. It was all about how even in your 40s, 50s and beyond, you can change careers, you can learn something new. And that the hate people have towards that is really a negative force in the world. How does that apply to chess? Chess, as with anything, is something that is a lifelong art, right? You get better at it over time. I wrote a piece recently that hasn't been published yet that it's impossible to master the game of chess, as you well know, because there are an infinite number of positions and games that can be played. And so you can't master the game, but over time you can grow to kind of develop your own artistry with it, regardless of where you are. I wish there were more, you know, 60, 70 year olds uh, and up who were getting into chess because it's this really beautiful game that can not only strengthen your mind, but kind of get you uh, really pumped up for other things. I've compared chess to so much in life. Uh, I found it's applied to the world of politics, of course, uh, writing, uh, the military. There was a lot of application with that when I was in. You know, I feel like it's the kind of thing that regardless of where you are in life, it can be a force for good. And ageism in general, it's just a terrible thing. And I hate how we tell, you know, I'm 32. And so I'd say I'm definitely on the younger side of life at the moment. Uh, but I hate how we tell older Americans and older people in general that they have to stop doing things at a certain point. That's ridiculous. You know, if someone wants to write a book when they're 60 or 70, or if they want to go play a sport, why shouldn't they? You know, we should support that. Uh, No one should have an expiration date on what they can accomplish or experience in this life. I totally agree. That said, what about becoming like the world champion or the U.S. champion? That's hard to do if you don't start young, right? Of course it is. But if you have that as your goal and you're willing to put in the work uh, and, and make sure that you are willing to go further than anyone uh, can go in accomplishing that, why not give it a shot? I want to become a FIDE minister someday. I want to get a title. Um, I'm, I'm nowhere near that, but I've made it my goal by age 40 to you know earn the FM. I think it is this kind of thing where you know if, if people are willing to put in the work, if they're willing to put in the labor, we shouldn't tell them that they can't. Who are we to tell them they can't? Um, there are so many folks who've accomplished such great things in life at ages where we would normally, that society would normally tell them they can't do that. Um, so yeah, I, I reject that. I think that folks should look past age and look to ability and competence and compassion. I love that because the point is, if nobody's done it before, then it's even cooler because you get to be the first. They always say you can't do it until you do it. 
right? Uh, and that's so many things. Uh, you know, the number of women I'm sure who've been told they couldn't be good at chess throughout history, uh, and said, "No, screw that. I'm going to go out and I'm going to show these men exactly what can be done on a chessboard." And so many women have, including yourself. I didn't know that actually. I had no idea that that was a goal, and now I'm even more excited because it means that this is not just like a flash in the pan for you to play chess, have some fun, try to reconnect with old hobbies. This is really serious business. You're going to be with us. Oh yeah, I'm going to spend this decade working toward that goal. And if I don't get there, that's fine. But I love this game. I've always found it quite beautiful. And you know, now that I'm in a place in my life where I can dedicate a little more time to it, why not go for it? I did some spying on your MSA history, which is, you know, just to take a look at some of the tournaments you've played in the past. And some of them include Armed Forces Championships. Tell us about the culture of chess in your Army experience. It's fascinating. Uh, So, you know, the military has certain stereotypes attached to it, right? It's very gung-ho and aggressive. But, you know, what I love about these tournaments is that you go to them and you meet not only retired players, but you meet cadets from military academies. You meet folks from the Army, Navy, Marine Corps, Air Force, Coast Guard, all these folks of different branches and parts of their career uh, and abilities come together and they see who can, you know, be proclaimed the armed forces champion. And it's unlike anything else in the military. If you go to a military base, uh, you won't see people playing chess. So you go to this tournament with these folks who have these common experiences with you, who've been through basic training, been deployed, you know, know what it's like to serve in the military and be in that military lifestyle. Uh, and then to connect over the chessboard is just a very sweet experience that you don't get anywhere else. And certainly not at any, any other chess tournament. This Armed Forces Championship is really unique among Army competitions in that it's all ages. That's right. It's for active duty military, uh, some reservists, I believe, and then folks who are officially retired. Everyone, all, all of those categories are invited to compete. And I'm actually going to compete in the next one uh, whenever that comes up. Oh, that's cool. And what was the ratio generally of active and retired? Pretty decent. Uh, I think active was usually about... I want to say 65, 70%, retired 30%. Now, of course, the retired players were usually uh, better. They have a lot of time on their hands to study and prepare. But, you know, it wasn't unusual to see uh, an active player do really well and, and even win the tournament sometimes. And in your service, you mentioned that you didn't um, play chess that much. Like in your actual service, it was more like in these championships that you went to. So chess wasn't really a big part of your Army experience outside those events. It wasn't. In fact, the only really serious push I made for it was in my last year as an enlisted soldier. There, there is this thing called um, the U.S. Armed Forces Chess Team, and you have to qualify for it, and then you go to Europe to compete in the NATO Chess yeah. Championship against other Armed Forces teams. And so I was selected to compete in the Army uh, Selection Tournament. It was really fun, because I got the entire week off from work, uh, and I got to, you know, play chess. And for a, for a private in the military, that's that's really rare and, and quite fun to do. Where was that? That was in uh, Fort Myer, Virginia. So DC region. Should there be more chess in the armed forces? Do you think it, it's like a valuable thing for free time? Yes, absolutely. I, I think it's the kind of thing that increases your discipline. Uh, it's really good for teaching patients. Uh, it's certainly therapeutic in many ways. Uh, now there are times when I play chess and I don't find it therapeutic, <laughs> but Chess is really great for grounding you and showing you that when you're willing to, um, you know, slow down and think things through, uh, it not only helps you in your game, but also helps you off the board with, with other things in your life. So one of the reasons I was so excited to talk to you on this podcast is since becoming Women's Program Director at U.S. Chess, I continue to think critically about women's tournaments. And I'm curious about your thoughts about the gender binary and how 
um, the growing realization that there is all of the, the gender is really more of a continuum than the binary. Does that threaten women's tournaments? I don't think so. No, not at all. Uh, you know, I think as long as U.S. Chess invites folks who are in the you know female and non-binary space to compete, I don't see how that should threaten the tournament moving forward. You know. I, I'm really impressed with the way that the United States Chess Federation, compared to other sports organizations, has made such a valiant effort to reach out to women and make sure they're included and encourage their participation. Chess is a great equalizer, right? Anyone with a brain, uh, and, and that's everybody, can can try their hand and see how good they're at it. Uh, gender, uh, gender by itself and sex by itself are not impediments to how good you can be at chess. Um, now we can't say that for other sports necessarily, right? It's, it's much rarer to see a woman who competes in college football than it is a man. And there are other barriers with that as well. Chess has no physical component with that. It's just your brain. Uh, there is no reason why a woman can't be the world chess champion across the board, right? Of all genders. Um, and so what I'm really impressed with is the way that USCF, uh, has recognized the importance of breaking down that barrier, uh, ensuring that women have safe environments to compete in, uh, that they have, uh, tournaments where they can go and meet other women who are in this game and, uh, be able to collaborate and network and connect with other women without, you know, feeling like they're, um, not welcome, which, which has been an issue in the past, I think, and probably still is an issue for a lot of women who compete. Well, yeah, I couldn't agree more with that. I think that this kind of uh, knee-jerk response that because there are women's tournaments, it means that women aren't good enough. It doesn't really follow logically. It's just a random kind of leap from one one point to another. And what I find is that a lot of folks don't understand. And, you know, obviously when I was in the closet uh, presenting as male, I didn't really understand this as well, um, that there are girls and women who compete and who are sexually harassed or who are made to feel uncomfortable by certain players who compete. Um, you know, that's that's something that's happened at chess tournaments. And making sure that women are invited to compete in spaces that are um, uh, substantial and competitive, uh, but do not come with this undue burden on girls and women just because they're girls and women is incredibly important. It's not about, you know, saying that girls and women can't compete at chess. It's about giving them the same opportunities that men have to compete or boys and men have, have to compete in tournaments without feeling harassed or excluded for any other reason. In general, most of the women and girls who do play in these events also play in mixed events, but it could be a nice change of pace to not have to worry about those things that you mentioned. You said that you didn't realize this before coming out as transgender. What opened your eyes? Was it your first tournament where you played as a woman? I should, I should back up. I'm saying when I played as a kid in the closet in middle school, you know, uh, presenting as a teenage boy, I think I was, you know, certainly far more pathetic than most teenage boys at the time. Uh, but I, I didn't understand, of course, the just daily nature of girls and women and, and what they experience on a daily basis. Um, I will say when I came out of the closet and I started getting sexually harassed and or street harassed, things like that, that was a wake up call because I knew it existed. But knowing of its existence and actually experiencing it are two very different things. Um, and so, you know, I, I don't think that a lot of boys and men, even the most well-meaning among them, realize just how much um, women and girls face barriers across the board, not only in chess, but in life in general, whether it's in the workplace or schools or, you know, hobbies like chess or sports or what have you. Just being looked at more, even if it's not negative or harassment, I think that's an experience that 
women and girls have, especially in a male-dominated sphere like chess, that it's hard for, for men to relate to. Yes, yes. And, you know, as someone who gets stared at everywhere I go, <laughs> it's very uncomfortable. You know, and then honestly, you know, at the tournament uh, this week, uh, I was stared at a lot by some competitors. And it didn't bother me, bother me as much. I didn't feel threatened. But it does make you a little uncomfortable when you can see other people staring at you constantly, uh, kind of ogling you, objectifying you, um, putting you in a weird space. I still felt safe. I still felt included, like I could compete, but it's a little taste of what all girls and women go through, not only in the world of chess, but in the world outside of chess on a daily basis. And it's very important that we be cognizant of that. So what advice do you have for people who um, are staring partly because they're excited to see a woman at the tournament or it's somebody that they admire? Um, what advice, like, do you just, you look at them and you smile and then you force yourself not to keep doing it. I mean, is there any kind of uh, specific advice you have? I would ask them to be introspective. I would ask them to um, question themselves. Would I be doing this if I were a male competitor? Would I be staring at them? Would I be walking up to introduce myself um, just to see if we can hang out or get coffee or drink afterward? You know, a lot of these seemingly benign behaviors come across as a little aggressive sometimes because it's not just you doing it. It's 10 other boys or men before you who are asking the same questions or doing that same kind of staring. I think there are a lot of boys and men who are so well-meaning, who just don't understand that it's part of a larger dynamic that feeds into it. Um, you know, if you're at a cafe, if you're, if you're a woman at a cafe and um, you get a very polite gentleman who comes over to hit on you, um, I think a lot of men don't realize that that gentleman was one of 10 in the hour <laughs> who did some kind of hitting on or flirting uh, that wasn't necessarily welcome. So if you're at a chess tournament and you see a girl or woman competing, just treat them like everybody else. Treat them like you'd want to be treated. I want to show up to a chess tournament and just be able to compete and not feel like, you know, my gender um, is somehow a substantial part of how I compete or how I interact with the other players, right? I want to be able to compete in a way that, you know, where it's just chess players in the environment and not just you know, a woman chess player in a sea of men and she's treated like a woman more than she's treated as a chess player or a chess competitor, a respected opponent. So if they do want to channel their admiration, you think they should maybe do that online? Like, uh, how do how would they express, well, I really think this person is great because my sister or daughter, I want them to play more chess. and But still too much attention in person is not good. It's a hard question, right? Uh, because so often, I, I think there are a lot of allies out there, uh, boys and men who want to be very supportive of women in chess. Mm -hmm. um, but often there is some undue labor put on girls and women. And really the labor should be on boys and men to make spaces more inclusive, right? So if it were a young man who is really gung-ho about making you know, a space more inclusive of everybody, um, I would have them ask themselves, you know, have you done the necessary work yourself? Have you done the research? What are you doing personally to build a program or get more girls or women involved in chess? The last thing you should do, I think, is walk up to a girl or woman and say, can you teach me how to uh, be more inclusive? Can you, you know, spend your precious time teaching me how to be a better ally. You know, allies should be doing that work themselves. Um, and that goes across the board, whether it's uh, white allies for people of color, um, you know, uh, able-bodied allies for persons with disabilities. Um, accessibility should be a labor that's put on those who are trying to make 
an environment more inclusive, not the people who need to be more inclusive from the get-go. That's just my opinion, though. And that might seem harsh, but, you know, imagine you're a girl or woman who's competing in tournaments and you get all of these boys and men who will walk up to you and say, it's so cool that you're competing, which is a little condescending sometimes, or it can come across as condescending. Um, and then it's followed by, can we connect or get coffee so you can teach me how to be uh, a good boy or man in chess and make sure that I'm, you know, helping others? It's a complicated question, but I would encourage people to take on the labor themselves. That's really fascinating. Yeah. I mean, of course, I, I lived through that being, I'm getting lots of attention as a girl in chess and I didn't enjoy it. And then I actually started to enjoy the attention at some point. So there's also that. Oh, that tell me more about that. I'd like to know more. At some point, I enjoyed the fact that I was getting you know, more attention, more accolades and all of that for, for being a woman. But it was also a barrier in the beginning. I think that a lot of people who stick with it do enjoy attention. But unfortunately, we're losing the ones who don't like it. Yeah, I think any advocacy movement, any movement that's made to get an environment to be more inclusive and diverse it goes in stages, right? So at first, you know, there are folks who enter and it's a novelty and it's treated as a novelty. And over time, you know, you get more folks and there becomes a tipping point where, you know, people who are competing really, really don't want to be seen as a token or as a novelty. They just want to be seen like everybody else. I come from a, you know, a political world, an advocacy world where, yes, it's really cool to see, you know, more diversity and inclusion. Um, but at the same time, there's this whole overarching conversation on labor and really the goal of any chess environment, any, any chess tournament should be that every player who shows up feels like they're not being treated differently just because of who they are. And sometimes even, even a well-meaning focus can make someone feel isolated or alone in their experience. Uh, and it's good to be mindful of that. Yeah, I totally agree. So what else do you think we can do? Right now we have about 15%. 14, really. I like to round it up to 15. Female membership in U.S. Jazz. What kind of steps do you think would make it 20%? And that's a big increase. Yeah, no, no doubt. I mean, you know, look at it this way. Congress right now is 23% women. Um, Fortune 500 CEOs are about 6% women overall. Uh, so the world of chess is actually on track, believe it or not. I mean, that kind of um, ratio for an environment that has been historically dominated by men isn't too bad. I think that what USCF is doing right now is perfect. They're creating more spaces for women to compete uh, that feel safe and uh, affirming. They're encouraging uh, girls and women to move up the rankings with all those uh, really great uh, ratings lists. Uh, they have the U.S. Chess Women's Program, which is led by you, and you do such a fabulous job of it. I think the, re the recent issue of Chess Life uh, the women's issue is really powerful. I've never seen that. Has that been done before? It has, but it's been a while. It, it, there was about maybe 10 years ago with Anna Zatonsky on the cover. Mm. But I think this one was also very, uh, the, the new editor, Melinda Matthews, is only the second female editor in Chess Life magazine history. Wow. It's incredible. And see, that, that that's, uh, that's uh, the result of representation, right? Putting a woman in a position of leadership. It's good for everybody uh, because it shows a different perspective that is so often hidden from view. Obviously, I don't know Melinda that well, but clearly she's doing some kind of great work because, uh, you know, the, the women's chess program has been started within USCF and uh, Chess Life has done this great issue. You know, honestly, the girls and women I saw competing today seemed really excited to be there. 
They seem so amped up to clash with an opponent over the board and show what they show what they know and engage in the art of chess, um, and it's really encouraging. Yeah, you yeah, know, there's actually a lot of female leadership in U.S. chess right now. The executive director is a woman, Carol Meyer. The creative director is a woman, Frankie Butler. It does seem that, particularly in U.S. chess and all sorts of organizations in chess in the United States, there's a lot of female leadership in FIDE. They're making really good steps because the um, new president actually just put out a statement about women's equality in terms of actually a really strong statement, which was great in terms of actual representation, not quite as much as we see here yet. But, you know, they've got Judith Polgar as a vice president. And it seems like, yeah, things are moving in the right direction. Um, Who are some of your chess heroes? (laughs) Oh, gosh. So I remember being a kid and reading all about Irina Crush. Um, I remember when she won um, the U.S. Women's Championship at 14. And I, I forget where it was I read about this, um, but she she didn't use women's titles. Um, and she really wanted to, you know, stick with a very strict uh, route upwards in her chess development um, and only competing in tournaments that... Um, you know, everyone was competing in, but now obviously I've, you know, kind of come to see the importance of women's only spaces. And I'm sure so does Irina Crush, but that independence that she showed where she really wanted to just be the best in the world, regardless of gender, who wouldn't love that? And, you know, being in the closet at the time, you know, and looking for strong women role models that really spoke to me. If you're someone who is an individual who really wants to reject all of those restrictions, um, and that's really, that's, that's quite appealing. As far as other heroes, honestly, I really like, uh, <laughs> this is so silly, but I like Boris Vasquez a lot. Um, what a classy person uh, over time. I mean, he is just, because he was painted as such an enemy in 1972 against Fisher, and he's really gone out of his way to, you know, connect with people and be like a, a really great role model to younger chess players. Um, I like what Kasparov is doing with, just chess in general. Uh, I saw he retweeted your post or retweeted something about women in chess, which is, is really cool, I think, for, you know, arguably the world's uh, you know, greatest chess player in modern history to do that. What about you, though? I, I, I love learning about what my, because you were a personal hero of mine when I was growing up, because I saw your name all the time in chess life, and I wanted to be a master like you someday. Who were your heroes? Well, Judah Polgar was a big one. The Polgar sisters, because their style was so aggressive, and like, like you, I love that they just wanted to be the best player. Even though I, um, when I started getting invited to women's tournaments like the U.S. Women's Championship, I was very excited because the the competition was so strong. But I still was very inspired by, you know, Judith beating grandmasters, you know, three times her age. And at that time, it wasn't like as common child prodigies. And she also was, you know, arguably the greatest child prodigy of all time because not only did she beat Bobby Fischer's record for the youngest grandmaster in history, but she was also doing this activity breaking gender barriers as well. So I, it was just completely incredible. So, and she had red hair also. (laughs) And redheads are amazing. I gotta say. (laughs) And now that I've studied more of the history of chess, I also like some other female um, players like um, Rudenko, who was the Google doodle. Um, She was a great hero. And then Sonia Graf and Vera Menchik, um, all these women who were just so affected by history, um, particularly World War II. And 
um, Veramenchik in such a tragic way, dying in the London Blitz. And Sonia Graf in being so vocal against the Nazis and being so lucky that she was in Buenos Aires in 1939. So she was able to escape Europe and she ended up eventually immigrating to the United States. So to me, like some of these women from history, it just it's incredible that in such a different time, they were able to make time to become great chess players. Absolutely. And, and they, they prove, you know, beyond the shadow of a doubt, that chess is an equalizer. It really is. Uh, the only thing that keeps, you know, more girls and women from being in chess is socialization. This constant pressure by society that tells girls and women they shouldn't compete in male-dominated events, um, that they should cede space for boys and men. So when we get rid of that socialization and we encourage participation and inclusion, we see what happens. Folks like Judah Polgar, Irina Crash, you, you know, all these uh, great women masters uh, can compete just as well as the men when they're given the chance to do so. What about the argument that a lot of people make, especially in the past, about testosterone in chess that... <laughs> oh, God. What a bunch of... <laughs> no, no. I mean, I hear that kind of thing all the time that like, that's one reason why women don't play as much chess as men. I mean, I, I agree with you that the argument is kind of crazy because if you're completely amped up, it's probably too much for a chess game, right? Yeah. Well, what about what about the effect of estrogen? What about, you know, being able to have a greater depth of emotional maturity? And taking a step back and looking at the entire board, right? Not again, not getting so focused that you miss other pieces of the puzzle. I'm not saying this in a general way that that women are necessarily better than men or that individual men can't have a great depth of emotional maturity. But I do think women have a tendency to engage more thoughtfully, to think things through before they, uh, you know, go on the attack, to have all their pieces uh, engaged in a way that they get victory. The aggression is a good thing, except when it's not. <laughs> Aggression sometimes leads you down a path in which you can see it backfire. Um, and I think women don't do that nearly as often as men do. Um, that's just my personal opinion. I agree because I get this question in poker a lot as well about testosterone and why men play more poker and have won more championships than women. And I say it's just the, the wage gap more than anything. They don't have as much time or money to go and play in these tournaments. I think that ties into chess as well. Um, the circumstances that make it difficult for women to play as adults, uh, whether it's the lack of childcare or less money, less wealth, not necessarily a biological thing. And you're right that there's these potential strengths that women have. But if you start the question saying, why are women worse, rather than what type of traditionally female qualities could be good. So a lot of a lot of it's about the framing of the question. That's right. And those other barriers you talked about are so important and, and they regularly get discussed in these conversations. You know, the United States is one of three countries in the world that doesn't have paid maternity leave. There are three countries in the world. The others, I think, the other two are, I think, Sri Lanka and Papua New Guinea. We're the only industrialized nation in the world that doesn't guarantee that new parents get paid time off. And the burden within our society doesn't fall on fathers, it falls on mothers, right? And so women are less likely to be hired. They're less likely to be put, put, be put in positions of leadership. Uh, they're less likely to be encouraged to run for office, to be given, uh, you know, the uh, control of a Fortune 500 company. And I think they're less likely to be encouraged to compete in sports and chess in general. We have set up a system in place in which men are naturally encouraged to compete. 
women are not naturally encouraged to compete. In fact, we often uh, discourage women who want to go out there and kick some right? So I really think that Chas says within everything else in life, if we remove these barriers and we get more women competing, I firmly believe we're going to have our rock star woman who uh, breaks out uh, into the male-dominated chess world and is a contender for the world championship someday. I guarantee it. It's going to happen. And when it does, that's going to be an enormous title shift. It's going to create a boom where you see far more girls when competing than I do now. Yeah, I agree. I think that, you know, in America, it could be Jennifer Yu, who just won the U.S. Women's Championship and is playing in the mixed-gender U.S. Junior Championship. How old is she, by the way? 16, 17? 17. And she's from the DMV, by the way. She's from Virginia. So, a little pride in that. (laughs) I mean, one thing that I love about Jen that some hardcore chess people don't like as much is that she's so overall smart and sociable. Like, she's got a almost perfect SAT score and he's got like a million friends when, when you know what hey I mean Magnus Carlsen also has a million friends and lots of hobbies so it's not like I'm saying she can't be the world champion because of that but it does seem like she, let's just say she's got lots of options yeah um so if she does stick with chess the sky's the limit but she also might just change the world in some other way which I don't think I can really hate on no absolutely not and why shouldn't we be encouraging girls and women to be well-rounded young women we met today at the u.s women's open you know you were talking um about the champion but you know i also met another young woman who played quite well i think she got three and a half out of five uh she just graduated college she's gonna go start a weed farm in canada i mean you know i I don't know a lot of men uh period who would have the guts to do that but she's like no i'm gonna move to canada i'm gonna start my own business and i'm gonna grow it over time she's 22 so we need more folks like that in chess that are well-rounded and have ambitions beyond the, the world of chess Oh, God, you have so many in chess. Alyssa Malakina, um, lawyer, writer, started the New York Chess Corporate League um, with her friends Yuan Ling and uh, Alexander Weiner, both, of course, women. I think you actually have a lot. I, I was talking to you in the elevator about how poker is a great networking tool, but I think chess is a great networking tool, too, especially as it becomes more popular. And women really get that, that this is a calling card to say, not just that I'm smart, but that I can apply my intelligence in this focus way and it gives you chess friends for life from all over the world so i think women have been really intelligent about that especially considering that we only represent 15 percent of the u.s chess membership it feels to me that they're overrepresented when it comes to leadership and finding ways to use chess to promote other activities i couldn't agree more it's particularly powerful out in the um you know, for lack of a better term, civilian world with folks who are not super familiar with the world of competitive chess. When I tell people I play chess, competitive chess, they're very surprised. Um, and I think part of it is me being trans, part of it is me being a woman. But I think overall, it's very impressive to people when they find out you know how to play chess at a decent level. And I'm not even a decent player, you know, I'm a, like a classy player or something. I'm getting better over time. But for these young women, um, and for women in general, who reach that master level and compete in international tournaments and for titles uh, and all that jazz, I mean, that's very impressive to folks. It says that, you know, just as you point out, they have the discipline and drive to follow through and um, kind of present themselves on the, uh, the competitive field. One of the things that I love about you is your writing. And I think that chess is ready-made for writing because it forces people to tell a story. And with all of your work, it seems like there's always like a great story. And then that kind of leads into a, a larger point. Every chess game is a movie. Have you noticed that? Every single chess game is a movie. 
you start out with, you know, introducing the characters in the beginning, getting the, the, the development going on. Uh, you quickly find the hero's journey, so to speak, where you have that uh, that big hump, that big problem that's presented in the middle game, and then you'll find a denouement or a conclusion uh, in the end game. Um, and it's that's why chess is so fascinating to people who get into it, is because over and over it never gets old. You see just these gorgeous games that are played. I, I what was it I saw a few days ago? Some grandmaster sacrificed a queen, like on move seven or something. And then went on to win 30, 30 moves later with just this incredible game that was gorgeous. And it's really interesting how often I find myself saying, I wish I could show this to other people in my life, but they don't understand chess. They don't get it, right? They, they, or they don't know how the pieces move or they don't understand what they're looking at. And I so often want to just you know, go to my best friend and be like, oh my God, I want you to look at this. And I know you can't understand it. So let me just explain to you why this was incredible. You know, why that this um, you know, 15 year old grandmaster just did something that was off the charts brilliant. Um, and, and you wouldn't understand it until, you know, you get how the, uh, the game works. So yeah, every chess game is a story and it's so cool to write your own stories on the board. Who are your favorite chess writers? Um, I forget the woman who wrote this book called Chess Bitch. Was that it? <laughs> who wrote that again? Oh, was that you? I'm just kidding. Um, no, I remember flipping through that at a tournament, I want to say 10 years ago. And you featured a trans woman in there. Yeah, Angela Alston from, right. from your state, too. You were born in Texas, right? Uh, well, I was raised in Texas. Raised in Texas. I wish I could say I was born there because I am a Texan through and through. Um, but I wish I was born on, tech, oh, on Texas soil. But I remember reading that like 10 years ago. I was in Vegas, actually. I was here for... What is the, what is the tournament that's played in December? Here? The uh, North American Open. The North American Open. I was here for the 2008... North American Open, and I was in the bookstore, and I, I read through your book, and I remember coming across that, and I, I, that's at the time when I was very much in the closet, of course, but trying to figure things out, um, which would be a much longer journey than I thought it would take. But I remember, you know, seeing this trans woman in there, and it was really wonderful to see you interview this woman, and you know, have her be affirmed as a you know fellow sister in the world of chess. It was really cool. Um, it was unexpectedly affirming. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure I'm sure if I look back at the transcripts of the interview, I asked some like insensitive questions because of course I think the national conversation about transgenderism was not as advanced, so I didn't have much to go on, but I was just a sensitive person who was curious. <laughs> um and Angela was just so wonderful and patient and she was super nice. I mean, she was actually very close to qualifying for the US Women's Championship. Really? She was like a twenty one hundred um almost master and at that time that was kind of like the bubble of the u.s since then the women's championship has gotten even stronger so it's more like 23 50 now but yeah she was very close and uh at the time u.s just didn't have the transgender policy that we have now but the president at the time i think was contacted and he said that yes of course they were gonna you know make sure that she was able to play so, I mean, even back then, it, it was nice to know that, like, she felt supported, that she knew that if she qualified, she was going to be playing, that she wasn't going to encounter that resistance. I really love that. And I, I want to say it was last fall when the policy was put in place, or last year. When was the policy put in place? That would be last year, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. It was last May, because it was right before Pride Month. And I remember seeing the news item, and I was thrilled, because I'd grown up playing chess, and I'd come out of the closet, and it was... Super exciting to see this organization that I grew up with was being very resolute and saying we support trans people and uh, we affirm their gender identity, whatever that may be. 
um, you know, trans women are women, trans men are men, um, you know, non-binary folks are non-binary. And I got to say that announcement alone really spurred me to get back into chess because for so long, as with every area of life, I had worries about how being a trans woman would affect my access um, and how I'd be welcome in different spaces. It was really sweet. Yeah, it was really, really wonderful. And that's what really got me back into it. And you were quite wonderful um, in helping me change all of my information. Uh, because for so long, my dead name had been my uh, the record that UCF, uh, USCF had. So I reached out to you and uh, you were very kind and taking me, taking me through the process of getting that changed and ensuring that USCF records matched you know, my legal records. So, um, For those of people who don't understand, what does dead name mean? Yeah, so dead name mean is the name that you are assigned at birth. Right? It's the name on your birth certificate originally. Um, and a lot of trans folks, when we come out of the closet, choose a new name that more aligns with the cultural expectations of our gender identity. My name was quite a masculine one. I won't say it here because I, you know, it's dead to me, obviously. But you know, I chose a name, you know, Charlotte, that was more true to who I am. And you know, USCF was so wonderful in making sure that my records matched that. And so when I went to play in the tournament, I think a month and a half ago with my first tournament, since coming out of the closet, uh, it was really cool to be able to roll up and say, well, here's my USCF card with my actual name. And the tournament director was really welcoming and um, registered me for the uh, the tournament. And I uh, competed as a, as a chess player first, but, but secondarily as a woman. It was very affirming. Charlotte's a beautiful name. It is a beautiful name. So is Jennifer, though. I, yeah, I really do like Jennifer as well. Even though it's very common, it's still, you know, hey, the classics are the classics for a reason, right? Well, thank you so much for joining us. Um, Charlotte, what's your next tournament? Um, so I might be competing at the World Open in Philly. And uh, I think I want to compete in the Open section. I don't want to do a class uh, section. And the reason being is that I want the experience of playing against these massively great players who have been doing this for quite a while. I'm really excited. I want to play against you. I want to play a chess game against you and I really great personal treat for me. Oh, absolutely. I'll challenge you on chess.com as soon as this is over. Yay, I love it. <laughs> Thanks again. We have a Charlotte Clymer. And if you want to keep up to date with her, it's really easy to find her on the internet. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> Twitter and Facebook, but right. That's those right. are the main ones. My last name is spelled C-L-Y-M-E-R. And if you are a girl or a woman who's playing chess, you can DM me um, and I will immediately follow you because I feel like uh, you are officially my friend and colleague in this uh, great competitive chess world of ours. If you like this episode of Ladies Night, be sure to check out all of our podcasts at US Chess, including Cover Stories with Chess Life and One Move at a Time. You can find all archive podcast episodes on the tag podcast in our U.S. Chess news section. And if listening to this motivates you to make a donation to U.S. Chess Women and our initiative to bring more girls and women into the game, no amount is too small or too large. So please consider making a donation on our website. Thank you very much. Now according to Sockfish... Got it all wrong After slightly advantage I had nothing But my dear Capablanco You tell me We'll learn more from our defeats Who needs victory?